The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their generation than the sons of light. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. What do you think of this sermon that Jesus preached? I'll tell you what I think. I think that if I had preached it rather than Jesus, many of you would be offended. And I think that because Jesus attacks two of our shibboleths. He attacks our love of money, and he attacks our false piety. Our false piety is clearly a target when he tells this parable in which an unrighteous man, a dishonest man, is set up as an example. And when he comes right out, point blank, and says that the sons of this world are superior to the sons of light in this respect, in regard to their shrewdness, their prudence. Jesus overturns our false sense of piety. Among many examples that could be cited in media, one that immediately comes to mind is from the movie Apocalypse Now, where General Kurtz points out the irony, the hypocrisy of American piety. To paraphrase, we train young men to drop fire on people but their commanders won't allow them to write profanity on their airplanes because it's obscene. Now, I had to modify that quote by leaving out a four-letter word, which rather proves the point in a further irony that we are frequently more upset by silly and superficial things straining out a gnat while swallowing a camel. For example, we allow or are in the process of allowing minors to mutilate their bodies in unspeakable ways, but we forbid them from getting a tattoo. We train our doctors to do unspeakable, horrific things to living human beings in their mother's wombs. But we insist that they first swear the Hippocratic Oath to do no harm. Inside the church, it's not so different. We make our pastors publicly, solemnly swear to teach the Word of God in all its truth and purity. But as soon as they read or apply that word of God in some way that's contrary to our politics or to our own personal sensibilities or to whatever 20th century version of Lutheranism we were taught, suddenly we denounce them. 
In the church at large, our institutions are in danger of being overrun by so-called anti-racists, anti-fascists, and the rainbow sodomy cult. But does the church call them to repentance? Does the church discipline them or tell them that they have severed themselves from the body of Christ? No, rather the church allies itself and sides itself with these chasing after so-called racists, so-called fascists, and so-called people who are insensitive to the rainbow agenda. Our marriages and our families are being subverted and destroyed by feminism, but anyone who points this out runs the risk of being labeled a misogynist, even within the church. It is an age of lawlessness, anomia, nonconformity to the law of God. But in our nonconformity, we simply set up a false piety along with false sins. And it is more important now than ever for us to recognize those false sins and when we are accused of them, to laugh them off because they are not real sins. They are false sins of a false piety, of a false religion. And that religion is antithetical to Christ. Don't forget, the Lord of the heavens and the earth was accused of doing wrong because his disciples did not wash their hands. That's about where we are today. Now, more than ever, we need to return to that word of God, that word that in fact determines what is right and what is wrong, what is righteous and what is sinful, and to let our consciences be bound to that word and to that word alone. In this way and in this way only can we be free. Slaves of Christ but free to the slave masters of this world. In fact, in the Book of Concord, the Lutheran Confessions from the 16th century, one of the documents, the formula of Concord, in its articles five and six, talk about the law of God in this rather astonishing way, that one of the effects, one of the purposes of the law in the Christian life is to set us free from all the nonsense condemnation that the world tries to heap upon us and from all the nonsense piety that the world tries to heap upon us. The law of God sets us free and says, no, this in fact is what is pleasing to God. This in fact is what is righteous. Morality is not some neutral thing. One's morality indicates one's God. And likewise, money is not some neutral thing. How one uses 
money and possessions, mammon is the biblical word, indicates whether they in fact serve God or serve mammon. And as Jesus will go on to say, one cannot do both. I suppose I am supposed to now condemn you with the law by asking you to nitpick the way in which you use your finances, scolding you for spending a little too much at Nordstrom's, chastising you for not tithing, otherwise asking you to reflect on your bank account and what that might say to you in regard to your priorities. And if those things need to be said, well then let them be said and let your heart repent and let your heart turn away from such things. But to tell you the truth, my heart is not quite in that as you can tell. That is because again I feel as though there is a great temptation in our day and age to strain at gnats while swallowing camels. The real evil when it comes to mammon in our world are the likes of BlackRock and Vanguard and State Street and various individuals connected with them who run governments like puppet strings, who are heavily invested in the military-industrial complex, which is not profitable unless what? There's a war. Lo and behold, there's a war. There's profit. Then what? Those same companies swoop in after the fact and profit from, quote-unquote, rebuilding the nation that they destroyed, profiting on both ends of the sick transaction. Likewise, pharmaceuticals. Pharmaceutical companies don't profit unless what? There are sick people. Thus, there are almost certainly diseases that can be cured that aren't because it's profitable, and diseases that are introduced because it's profitable to cure them, and side effects from the pharmaceuticals that can only be cured by what? More pharmaceuticals. So on and so forth, it goes in nearly every aspect of our lives. ESG scores, environment, social, and governance scores that trickle down to corporations demand that every employee be catechized according to the new religion. And the new religion is one of just that, ESG, environment, social, and governance. Teaching an entire generation of adults in the workplace, a new morality with fake sins under the threat that you can go find employment elsewhere if you won't confess our creed. And the same thing happening to our children. Trace the money and you will find the connection. The institutions that run our educational system here in America, are indoctrinating our children onto the same thing the parents are being taught in the workforce. 
This is what apocalyptic literature would in no uncertain terms call a beast. A superpower with its tentacles in everything that is almost impossible to fight. And while that beast seeks to be as God, its mechanism for doing so is mammon. That then, more than anything else, ought to color our view as Christians toward mammon. We will understand where that power leads and where it goes. And we will seek then, not as sons of this world to participate in the worship of that beast, but as sons of light to fight against that beast and to use our resources in service of the kingdom of light. And that is precisely why Jesus tells this parable that we would take note from a wicked man who uses money shrewdly, prudently, as a means to an end. And we see the wicked of this world using money shrewdly, prudently, toward affecting their own goals and ends. And what our Lord would have us as sons of light do is see the shrewdness and emulate it, even though our ends are 180 degrees different. Our ends are not wealth and power in this world. All of that will evaporate instantly at the breath of our Lord's nostrils. Our ends are eternal. Our purposes are human beings living in harmony with God forever. Let us leverage then not merely our money, but our time, our energy, our prayers, our thoughts. Let us leverage all of it unto the greatest end, that eternal end that is held out before us. Indeed, these words of Jesus are enough to fill us with light and hope. We are, as he says, sons of light. We, who are by nature darkness, have been given new birth from above, from the one the scriptures call the Father of lights. He is light himself, and his son is light of light, and he gives us to be sons of light. And in just a moment, we will see the birth of a son of light here in our very midst in the waters of holy baptism. In those waters, we are to see an image of our Savior Christ Jesus. Just as those waters pour over us in baptism, we remember his death and his being put into the tomb. Just as those waters come off of us and we emerge and arise from baptism, we remember that Jesus is in fact and in truth risen from the dead. We have been conformed 
into his image and are being conformed into his image still. His light washes over each one of us, blotting out our sins and transgressions so that the Father of light sees them no more. Instead, he looks at you and sees sons of light and nothing else. And standing in that perfect light of Christ that shines not only upon us, but now also in us, we are bold and confident to stand against the powers of darkness without fear. They could not conquer Jesus on the cross. The victory was his. Nor will they win the day when he returns. The victory is his. As his people, as sons of light, let us walk in the light and let us fight. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.